world is writing a new story of global kinship. Postmodern Missionary dives into what it means to be a missionary pushing against the heritage of colonialism. Join Reverend Katie Meek as she explores life and faith in Sierra Leone. of a new format for the Postmodern Missionary Podcast that I am calling Disruptions in Church History. Now, this is our third installment, and we are going to be getting closest to the disruption that we are now experiencing. Today, we're talking about the Black Plague. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I wrote that in my notes. That's silly. Um, <laughs> so just to remind you why we're doing this, I had a lot of requests uh, that I add some teaching to um, my interviews on this on this podcast, which has been in the works for a while. I had a bunch of other themes planned, but then Corona happened and all of our lives and the whole world has been disrupted. And so instead, I decided to um, take the opportunity to see what certain episodes in Christian history might teach us about how to handle this particular disruption that we're experiencing now. And so here we are with a four-part series on disruptions in church history. Now, a few things you need to know. Number one, each week we're going to look at one disruption in church history. We're going to wade through what the disruption was, and then we'll ask the question of how the church responded to it. Um, and you're going to find that sometimes the church handles it really well and faces it in a really positive and gospel-centered way. Um, and then sometimes it doesn't. And oftentimes what you get is like a mix of the two. Number two, this is by no means, as you know, an exhaustive list. It's just stuff that I think is instructive and interesting. Number three, and this one's important, I decided to do this topic before most of the uprisings, the most recent uprisings against police brutality in the US, and before we once again turned our attention to this very important conversation about race for our generation. Um, and so it seems to me, and I I know a lot of you feel this way, that there are two disruptions happening right now. Um, but I do think that this topic has something to say about both of those disruptions. Number four, I personally am doing my own spiritual work toward becoming truly anti-racist, and I have been for a while now because I believe it's very important as a missionary to do that. Um, in fact, after all of this, um, uh, after uh, the killing of George Floyd and some of these conversations, my entire family is doing a study on racism um, led by the Smithsonian, of all things. Um, so, in fact, we just had a, a former police officer come and talk to us on Zoom um, just yesterday. So we're in the process of that. Um, now, this podcast is not directly about that. Not directly about that. So my plan is to tell you how these disruptions were handled by sections of the church for good or for ill. And I know that there will be parallels that can be drawn between the stories I tell here and what we're facing together today. But I'm not going to make those connections on this podcast. Maybe someday I will, but not on this podcast. Um, what I'm going to do instead is tell you, is essentially just let you and the Holy Spirit and maybe some friends work that out together. It is my firm belief and conviction that the church has to respond to the disruptions of today, whatever day they're in. Even if we don't respond, that is still a response. And so maybe looking back will help us to look forward. 
And number five, this one's also important. I think this is going to be fun. <laughs> it's been fun for me so far. I've heard some feedback from you guys that you're enjoying it. So thank you for that. I'd love to hear more um, uh, responses and thoughts about those parallels. Um, but it's still I, I just, you know, it's nerdy fun, but it's fun. And I'm super glad you're here. let's get started. Um, the Black Plague of the 14th century in Europe. That's what we're talking about today. We're going to talk about what the plague was, what the people went through, and then how the church handled it. So get ready. I'm super excited about this one. But first, I want to share with you what the church of that time looked like. I kind of want to set the stage so you know what kind of church and what kind of world the Black Plague entered into. So it's been like 900-ish ish years since we left off with the collapse of the Roman Empire a couple of weeks ago. Um, now, when that happened, as I said last time, the church stepped in and kind of guarded and protected, quote, civilization. You might also read Roman culture and way of life. When I say civilization, that's kind of a loaded word um, that I will unpack someday, but not here. But the church became essentially the stabilizing force among the chaos, which gave the church a great deal of power and influence over the culture. So um, what began with Constantine, what we call Christendom, was essentially solidified during these the years that followed um, all across present-day Europe, leading to Pope Leo III finally crowning Charlemagne the emperor of the new Holy Roman Empire in 800 CE. So with that act, a couple hundred years later, um, after the, our last episode, essentially Christendom is like solidified, the church and the state come together um, and have almost equal authority, if not the church having more authority in a lot of ways. So let's talk about essentially the Christianity of Christendom, like what that looked like. Um, so the Christianity of Christendom followed what some called, quote, medieval synthesis in which sacred and secular aspects of life are brought together. So there's a synthesis, no separation between sacred and secular. And I'm going to quote a historian by the name of Noel. He says, quote, the ideal symbolized by the cooperation between Charlemagne and Pope Leo III was an integrated view of life in which everything, politics, social order, religious practice, economic relationships, and more, was based on the Christian faith as communicated by the Roman Catholic Church and protected by the actions of secular rulers. And the expression of the Christian idea of salvation came through sacramental theology, in which people experience God's saving grace through the sacraments in a social setting, wherein the state and the church are combined. Okay, <laughs> that's kind of heavy <laughs> sentence there. But essentially, the idea of salvation, the way that you find salvation, comes through sacramental theology, it comes through living the sacraments. And so the sacraments become the markers of your faith from birth, which is baptism, to death, which is the last rites, and everything in between. So in the Roman Catholic um, expression of Christianity, there's, there's um, y'all, I think it's like, I think it's seven 
I always get the number wrong. It's either seven or nine. I'm pretty sure it's seven um, sacraments. In the Protestant expression, generally there's just two, baptism and um, communion. But in the Roman Catholic expression of the faith, you have confirmation, you have marriage, you have communion, confession, ordination for some, baptism, and last rites. Yeah, that's seven. (laughs) So the organized church plays a central role in the administration of these sacraments. You don't get the sacraments without the church. And um, that means that in in day-to-day living in the people at, for the people of Europe the church is central to your life um, salvation is a central importance and you just you live out that salvation through the sacraments so you're baptized you're confirmed you might get married or if you don't get married you'll likely be ordained in some form or fashion um, you take communion and confession so really communion and confession are the kind of day-to-day Um, pieces of what life looks like if you're a Christian and that is all in order to um, move toward salvation so if salvation is the central importance for all of life and it is experienced through the sacraments which are administered by the church then it followed that the church would be foundational foundational for everything in life and that is the christianity of christendom it was a christianity that went through many cycles of decay and distance from its ideals back to reform uh, and then back again so there's these cycles of decay and distance and then reform again and some seasons are centered on the gospel while others you know essentially gave space for corruption and power hungry church officials but the sacramental life of the people was primary and thus the church was organized to play the central role in life money politics society all of this right and um I would imagine I'm going to let you make parallels. I would imagine that you can see some of the pros and cons of that, but I share that because for me to imagine the life of a um, of a Christian during this time in Europe, it's like it seems kind of refreshing, <laughs> honestly, to be a Christian in Europe that you just you just live you just live out your faith. I mean, your faith is something that is a part of your everyday. It's a part of your day to day life. It marks the beginning. It marks the end, and then throughout there are these holy moments um, consistently um, and also some that are kind of appointed times that are very special Um, so back then Christians didn't spend all their time arguing about theology (laughs) they just lived out their faith Um, and for someone who you know in in very polarized times I don't know that seems really compelling to me so I wanted to share it with you um, just so you know it but then also you know what kind of life people are living at this time okay so by the 13th century, we're seeing what scholars call the high point of medieval Christianity. So the Pope is very powerful. Franciscan and Dominican monastic orders have just been formed in the last century and a half and are doing a great deal of missionary work. Um, the embarrassment of the Crusades is behind the church. Christian universities are forming, many of those universities still standing today, and they're thriving as cities start to take shape across the continent. Europe is united under the spiritual leadership of the Pope and the temporal leadership of the emperor, according to Gonzalez. So um, essentially spiritual and secular kind of come together between those two leaders. 
and things are really good and it looks like things are only going to get better but then everything pretty much falls apart about a century later and a big part of that falling apart is the coming of the black plague so let's get into it okay so the great plague which was also known as the black death the pestilence the great mortality or the bubonic plague now i just realized i've been calling it the black plague and every time i've said it i thought is that right no not right which is an example of how my brain will combine two truths and make one inaccuracy or lie i guess um so it's known by many things the great plague um the bubonic plague are kind of the big ones and i guess the black death as well so the great plague reached europe in 1347 and has been called the greatest biomedical disaster in european and possibly world history it likely traveled along trade routes toward the mediterranean it broke out in the black sea around the black sea and then traveled through the straits of gibraltar and made its way north so it hit Turkey, it hit North, Northern Africa, and went all the way up to England and Wales, and then further into Northern Europe. And the numbers vary depend on, depending upon where you get them, but most people agree that the bubonic plague killed at least 30% of Europe's population. Some say as many as 60% were killed. And according to Norman F. Cantor, if you got it, there was an 80% chance you would die of it. Now, what we now know about the plague is that it was carried by fleas on the backs of rats. Um, so ship to ship and then onto land, right? Um, and if you got it, you would go through three stages. First, flu-like symptoms with high fever. Second, black welts would form in the groin and armpit, which were essentially the swelling of lymph nodes. These were very painful and they could be as big as 10 centimeters, if you can imagine. Third, in the final stage, one would have respiratory failure. And generally it took five to eight days to go through the three stages. So you catch the bubonic plague, probably five days later, you're dead. Now today, antibiotics would take care of at least the first two stages, possibly not the third. Um, and the first wave of bubonic plague lasted until 1350, so in about three years. Now after that, outbreaks happened every 10 or 12 years, often only affecting the young because older people had developed some kind of immunity to it. And the consequences of the plague, the basic consequences of the plague, um, and this is very wide, less like a wide swath, um, but the plague had a huge effect on European uh, Europe's economy and population growth. It would take centuries, like 200 years at least, for the population to recover to the levels that it had in the 1300s. And the economy, which had been growing, it was expanding, it was strengthening, new markets are forming, new trade routes in Europe, and um, all of that is completely disrupted. And in some places, entire markets just completely disappeared. Um, in the places where the, the plague didn't hit as hard, what would happen is unemployment would increase. There's more people and not enough jobs, right? And so this started rioting and political upheaval, and there's just like a mess. And most of that growth was completely wiped out, and it would take 200 plus years to rebuild. Now, another interesting consequence in much of Europe was the fear of bathing. 
Um, some said that bathing, particularly the medical field at the time, said that bathing opened the pores up to the disease because they didn't know where it came from. A lot of people thought it was respiratory. Um, a lot of people, well, obviously people thought that you could get it through your pores. <laughs> and according to Cantor, I'm going to quote it, quote, even Napoleon rarely bathed. This was several hundred years later. Instead, he had a massage which with French cologne each morning. A lifestyle common to the European nobility by 1400 and a legacy of the Black Death and medieval medicine. Um, so a lot of people could have lots of commentary on the economics of what happened with the Black Plague. My, here I go again, <laughs> the bubonic plague. <laughs> um, but um, what I really want to talk about is what happened in the church. What were the theological and religious implications? And there were many. So let's talk about it. So we know something about the plague and the consequences of the plague, but let's talk about the Christian responses to the plague in particular. The first response would have been extreme repentance. So um, one response was that the plague was a punishment from God for human sin. That was part of their understanding. And it seems since the plague was so extreme, that meant that one's repentance should also be extreme. And so emerged the flagellant movement, not the flatulence movement, which is what I wrote first. <laughs> so hopefully I say it right from now on. Um, so Christians believed that in order to stop the plague, they needed to repent and renew their devotion to God. And after general repentance didn't work, according to Joshua J. Mark, a new movement started in Austria or Hungary and spread throughout Germany in which some zealous some zealous Christians led by a master would go city to city and whip themselves for their sin. They would fall to the ground in a frenzy and then they would lead communities in the slaughter of gypsies and Jews and other minority groups. More on that later. Another explanation was bad air or demonic forces. So um, another belief was that the plague was caused by, quote, bad air, demonic forces, or witchcraft and sorcery. People with means would therefore retreat from the city and go to the countryside, um, thus bringing the plague with them, unfortunately, in order to escape this, quote, bad air. They would also perform rites to rid homes from the bad air as well. And then if all of, all those explanations fail, um, what they moved to was just blaming the Jews. Good old scapegoating. So most egregious was when Christians turned their attention to the Jewish communities. The Jewish communities did not suffer quite like the Christians did, and the people are still not quite sure why that's true. Some hypothesize, which I love, <laughs> um, that this may have been because there were more cats in Jewish neighborhoods due to the facts, fact that Christians associated cats with witchcraft. I'm going to say that again because I love it. Some people believed that 
this may have been because there were more cats in Jewish neighborhoods due to the fact that Christians associated cats with witchcraft and thus they had likely fewer rats because of the cats. You get it, right? It's the same reason I have cats in Sierra Leone <laughs> to get rid of the little mice. Um, so whatever the reason, Christians began to blame the Jews for, quote, poisoning the wells from which Christians drank. They also had a long history of believing Jews to be practitioners of witchcraft and also murdering Christian children. Um, this was a long-standing prejudice that often led to persecution, and that persecution flared again during the plague. And the Christians, including Christian leaders and some members of the clergy, would kill Jews, often burning Jewish people alive in the streets. According to Justo Gonzalez, quote, it was a time of fear, and fear demanded victims. So another piece of this is that um, because of the plague, there start to become pretty significant changes in theology. So people start to to question the rationality of the universe and the rationality of God because the plague doesn't really make sense. And this was likely a consequence of the fact that the plague affected very healthy people and often in later waves affected the young, which didn't make sense to people. There's not a whole lot of good, there wasn't a whole lot of good explanation at that time. And so they started to question the rationality of the universe and the rationality of God. And for the common people, this meant that they turned to superstition. So they would have processions in the streets, ending at a shrine or a church, or sometimes even at a, a, a visual of um, Mother Mary. They would sometimes chop up snakes and rub it on a sick person's body, believing, according to Joshua J. Mark, that the, quote, evil of the disease would be drawn out by the evil of the dead serpent. They also drank potions made of unicorn horn, since, quote, the unicorn was associated with Christ and purity. People of means would also make pilgrimages to the Holy Land. Um, so there's a lot of different things to try and ward off the plague, to try and appease God, to stop the plague, lots of different things. Now for intellectuals, this questioning of the rationality of God's order led them to question humanity's ability to use reason to understand the mysteries of the universe. And that took on many different forms. Um, and I wanted to just give you one example of what that looks like. Um, the example is a man named Thomas Bradwardine. And he was an English clergyman. He was a mathematician and physicist. And for a short time, he was Archbishop of Canterbury before he died of the plague in 1349, 40 days after his consecration as Archbishop. Many would like to know what he might have done in terms of contributing to theology and the world of math and physics were it not for his untimely death. Now, now, Bradwardine was a theologian and a theorist who was significantly influenced by the plague. Norman Cantor explains his theology this way, quote, God in his absolute and infinite being, thought Bradwardine, is totally beyond understanding. 
His actions, whether of love or death, cannot be rationally articulated by the human mind. God's predestination of human events can only be endured and blessed, not explained. But humanity has the rational capacity to begin analyzing and comprehending the natural world, end quote. So essentially, you don't question or try and understand God. You just accept it. (laughs) However, you can start to question and try and understand the natural world. So this kind of thinking would lead to a sort of separation of science from theology. He's not the only one who's moving in this direction, right? Um, So rather than trying to figure out God, we ought to try and figure out the rules of God's creation, this universe. Some theorists said that we can't understand one one without the other and that human reason, although limited, was good enough to come to an imperfect understanding of God and nature and their relationship with one another. So there was one argument that said, okay, truth is one. Um, All truth, uh, essentially, um, we're not rational enough to really understand it completely. It's a mystery. However, our reason is good enough to come up with a good enough answer to allay any kind of fear, right? Now, others started to separate those two things out. There were some who even went so far as to say that there is a, quote, double truth of reason and faith, science and revelation. Now, you start to see the implications of this for modern scientific discovery, right? Up to this point, God was always part of the answer, always part of the explanation. But now we're beginning to see the sciences take God out of the picture. Now, that's not because of a lack of faith. These people are still very faithful Christians, right? But rather, it was because they believed that God's infinite mystery was too much for humanity to understand. So let's go with the stuff that we can understand, right? So this is going to lead to what you see as modern scientific discovery today. And the bubonic plague was not the only reason for that. However, it was a significant um, catalyst in moving moving, um, thinkers, Western thinkers in that direction. So there you have it, the bubonic plague. Um, this one hurt my feelings. I don't know if it hurt your feelings. <laughs> it certainly hurt mine um, when it came to the Christian response to it. But then, you know, I dug a little deeper and um, some of the information about the implications for today, I think, um, continue and um, speak a lot of things that I'm just going to let you figure out because I'm not going to make those parallels, like I said. So there you have it. That was episode three. Thank you so much for listening thus far. We have one more episode um, that I'm also really very much looking forward to. It's actually going to be from the 20th century. Um, But I just want to say and remind you, um, I hope that you're starting to put together the picture that we should not discount disruption in terms of um, the the way in which it changes our religious expression, our our theology, our religious understanding for the better or for the worse. 
um, disruption as a catalyst, it's a spark. And um, I hope that you're starting to put together some of those parallels for what it means for now. Um, I'm looking forward to the ways in which I get to noodle on that for the the coming months as well, um, because it's starting to fill out a picture for me too. So what I would love for you to do is um, subscribe to the podcast if you're not already subscribed. And if you are already subscribed, write me a review on Apple iTunes. I would love that. You can also follow me on all the socials. You can find me on postmodernmissionary.com. And um, let me know what you think about this one. What spoke to you? What do you question? All the things love to you guys. I hope you're having uh, a really good August and I will talk to you next time.